So if you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles or navigate on your devices to the book of Jonah, it's a short book. In fact, it's one of the shortest books in the Bible, just two short pages. And we're going to be spending our time together today looking at the story of Jonah and considering this question. Are we really open to what God's plan is? If you're a visitor with us or you haven't been with us for the past several weeks, this fall we've been considering the decisions that we have to make when we find ourselves at crossroad points in our lives. The decisions we have to make if we're going to follow God's path forward to accomplish his plans for us individually and as a church family. And over the past few weeks, we've considered what does it mean to be courageous when we find ourselves at the crossroads? And what does it mean to be good when we're at the crossroads? And today, the crossroads question we need to consider is, are we really open to what God's plan actually is? Or in other words, what does it mean to be open? So I'm not a fisherman. I like to eat fish. I've been fishing, but in no way, shape, or form would anyone consider me a fisherman. But there's one thing I do understand about fishermen. Apparently, fishermen like to tell fish stories. And fish stories, as I understand it, have a tendency to grow over time. Whether it's the fish that you caught or the fish that got away, the fish in the story tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger every time the story's told. Well, the Bible is full of fish stories, and perhaps the most famous fish story of all is the fish story that's found in the book of Jonah. And the fish story in the book of Jonah is so big and so unbelievable that many people have used it over the years to dismiss the book as mere fiction. But we know it's not fiction, and one of the reasons we know that is because Jonah's actually referenced numerous other times throughout the Bible, including by Jesus himself. In the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells Jonah's fish story to predict his own death and resurrection. And here's the thing, we could spend all day talking about why we can believe that the Bible is true, and I'd be happy to have that discussion with anyone who is struggling with that. But here's the thing. We believe in Jesus Christ. We recited our beliefs earlier. And we believe in Jesus Christ partly because anybody who can accurately predict their own death and resurrection should be believed. And so if Jesus thinks Jonah is legit, I'm going with Jesus on this one. And so let's take a look at Jonah's fish story to see what we can learn from it about being open to God's plan. So Jonah, like Jeremiah and Micah, who we've learned from the past few weeks, is also a prophet of God. But Jonah's a little bit different. Unlike the rest of the prophets in the Old Testament who were called to prophesy to the nation of Israel, calling them back to God, Jonah was actually sent to the city of Nineveh, which was part of the Assyrian Empire. They were a different race, they were a different culture, and they were actually enemies of Israel. And while the date is not exact, Jonah is called to prophesy to Nineveh sometime during the reign of Jeroboam II, which was from 793 to 753 BC. So this places him just a little bit before Micah in the historical timeline. And Jonah, let's just say Jonah was a somewhat reluctant prophet. And that's where the fish comes into the story. And the story starts like this in Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. So God calls Jonah to do a job. God calls Jonah to be part of his plan. And Jonah's response is to run away from God. And not just does he run away, but he runs in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. It would be like God calling us to go to California, and instead of going California, we drove down to New York and bought a ticket on a transatlantic boat to London. And we think about this and we say, Jonah, what are you doing? And we're quick to want to condemn Jonah because it's common for us today to say, you know, if God would just speak to me audibly, I would certainly do anything he asked me to do. So Jonah, why didn't you listen to God? But I think we need to be a little cautious about condemning Jonah so quickly because I think there's a little more Jonah in us than we might at first like to admit. And Jonah runs, but he seems to forget that you can't really run from God. After all, it's hard to run from a God who is everywhere. A good thing for us to remember the next time we think about running from God. So long story short, Jonah gets on the boat. There's a huge storm. Everybody on the boat decides that it's Jonah's fault because he's running from God. And so they decide the answer to their problem is to throw Jonah overboard. Not a really good day for Jonah. But it's okay because Jonah doesn't drown. God sends a fish to swallow Jonah. And God lets Jonah hang out in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights to spend some time thinking about what he's done. Seriously, a fish swallows Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. I told you, this is the best fish story ever. And if you're a parent, here's the takeaway for you. Sending your kids to time out is a biblical strategy. I don't know about the fish part of it, but time out's biblical. Sometimes our kids need it, and sometimes apparently God thinks we need to be sent to time out as well. And so he sends Jonah to time out for three days in the belly of the fish. He sends him there to spend some time thinking about what he's done. And as he thinks about what he's done, hanging out in the fish's belly for a few days, he apologizes to God, and he promises God that if he'll let him out of the belly, he'll do anything God asked him to do. And so Jonah gets himself back into the right frame of mind. He's ready to do the right thing. And so God says, okay, you can come out of time out. And as the story goes, the fish vomits Jonah up onto dry land, which just sounds completely disgusting to me. That's a good fish story, though. And so now Jonah's out of the fish. He's back in a good place with God. And God gives him a second chance to be part of his plan. And this is a key thing we need to recognize. Our God is a God of second chances. It's something that we need to hold on to when we find ourselves at points of failure in our lives. Our God is a God of second chances. And so the story continues in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So Jonah listens. And guess what? God's plan actually works. We keep reading. 
in verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And at this point, if you're Jonah, I'd be pretty excited in fact, I'd be jumping up and down for joy. You're sent to prophesy to a pagan city, and the entire city repents. 120,000 people repent. This is a revival of epic proportions. It would be like every person within a seven-mile radius of this building coming to a saving faith in Christ. How amazing would that be? How amazing would it be to be part of something like that? But what was Jonah's response to the epic revival? Let's keep reading in the beginning of chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarsus. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Okay. So Jonah is not exactly a happy camper. In fact, Jonah is downright angry. And Jonah has questions for God. Instead of encouraging Jonah, the repentance of the Ninevites leads to a deep-seated fury inside of him. It's an odd reaction to being used to accomplish God's plan. Or is it? We would like to think Jonah would be excited. We would like to think that we would be excited to place such a, such a central role in the repentance of so many people. But the absence of calamity brought calamity on Jonah. God turns from his anger, and Jonah's response is to turn to anger. Jonah was an object of God's compassion, but Jonah had no compassion. In effect, Jonah's saying, I don't like your idea of kindness, God. I don't like the idea that you're being kind to these Assyrian people. They're our enemies. I never expected you to actually be compassionate to them. I know that it's up to you to judge God, but you know what? It's time for you to judge. Get busy. They don't follow the laws of Moses. They don't follow the rules. They don't worship you, God. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't. Why would you be merciful to them, God? Jonah can't stand what he thinks of as God cheapening his mercy by extending it to Nineveh. He didn't want his enemies to have the opportunity to be forgiven. So he didn't want to tell them the good news. 
That's why he ran away. God had created Israel to be a people of blessing to all people. But Israel had decided to change the plan. They decided that not all people deserved God's blessing. And I'm very afraid that we've done something very similar. Because Jonah had created categories in his mind of who deserved and who didn't deserve God's grace. And now Jonah was angry with God for acting in a way that he didn't understand or approve of. And what we see is that Jonah really wasn't open to God's plan at all. So Jonah responds to God in this angry, questioning prayer. He gives this intellectual, creedal confession about who God is, but it is not at all a heartfelt confession. He acknowledges that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then he does this weird thing. He uses that truth to try and justify his own disobedience. Jonah throws into God's face this summary of his qualities, and then he uses that to try and justify his own sinful behavior. In effect, he says, God, you made me do it. If you weren't so good, God, I wouldn't have had to be so bad and run away. God, I know you're slow to angry, anger, but it's time for you to get angry. God, I know it's up to you to judge, but it's time, God, to judge. Jonah's questioning God and God's plan. God, don't you understand what's going on here? Don't you see? Don't you understand, God, that you're wrong? And the problem with Jonah isn't that he's questioning God. The problem with Jonah is there's too much Jonah in his questions and not enough God. See, it says, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Isn't this what I said, Lord? This is what I tried to forestall. I knew that you would, so take my life away. It would be better for me to die. And let's let that one sink in for a moment. God I would rather die than see Nineveh repent. I would rather die than welcome them into your family. That is a deep-seated anger and contempt. It's not Jonah's questions that are the problem. It's Jonah's attitude that's the problem. Because Jonah's questions are frankly real questions. And if we've ever sincerely grappled with our faith, they're questions most of us have had at some point. In fact, some of you may be asking them this morning, asking God why he's doing what he's doing or why he isn't doing something that we think he should be doing. And like Jonah, some of you are angry at God this morning because somewhere along the line, something happened to you that you didn't understand and you're angry at God for allowing it to happen and for not doing something about it. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew who God was. And Jonah knew who God was because God sent a fish to save him. And all God did for Nineveh was the same thing he did for Jonah. He gave them an opportunity to repent 
and to be forgiven. God saved Jonah and Nineveh. But Jonah was upset at God for saving Nineveh because Jonah was not open to what God's plan actually was. Jonah's complaint was that the people of Nineveh were simply not good enough to be saved. And God's response? Of course they're not. Nobody is good enough to be saved. This is why Jesus drove the Pharisees crazy. In Matthew 9, we read, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And we see that Jesus drove the Pharisees crazy because the Pharisees were obsessed with ritual and outward appearance. They were obsessed with doing the right things. They were obsessed with their creedal confessions, but they weren't heartfelt. Christ came to save sinners. We can't expect moral behavior from people who don't know God. We must introduce them to God, and then they will find morality. Our job is to get out into the community and exclaim God's amazing grace. We want our loved ones to be saved. We want people who look like us and think like us to be saved. But what about those people? Do we really want those people to be saved? Do we really believe that those people should be saved? Do we really believe that the Ninevites in our families, in neighborhoods, in schools, in workplaces, and even in our church should be saved? Are we really open to what God's plans are? Are we really open to God's grace and forgiveness being offered to all people? Do you want God to offer grace and forgiveness to people who have hurt you in your past? Or should he offer grace and forgiveness to your coworker who backstabbed you to get the promotion that you deserved? Or what about grace and forgiveness to the bully down the street that beats up your kid? Or the criminal who gets off on a technicality? Are we open to God offering grace and forgiveness to ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban? Do we think we should be sending bombers or missionaries? What about the doctor who performs abortions? Or the person who sits outside the abortion clinic plotting to shoot the doctor? If they repent, would we celebrate? What about the person who disagrees with us politically? Or even the political candidates themselves? What about people who have embraced a lifestyle that is clearly contrary to God's will? If they repented, would we rejoice? Or would we stand there and yell at God like Jonah, how dare you let them in, God? Are we really open to God's plan? 
Are we really open to his grace and forgiveness being offered to those people? Would we celebrate if they repented? As we consider the crossroads situations in our lives, we have to ask if we're really open to God's plan. Who are the Ninevites in our culture and world? And do we really want them to be given the opportunity to repent? Or, or like Jonah, have we walked out of the city to find a place to sit and sulk, waiting angrily for God to do what we have decided God should do? Jonah is full of self-centered questions. Jonah is full of I, and God is trying to refocus Jonah on others. And God is trying to refocus us on others as well. And God's reply to Jonah's question, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Seriously, Jonah, I sent a fish to save you. And now you're going to argue with me about who I'm going to save next? When we find ourselves thinking like Jonah, when we find ourselves condemning those around us instead of being heartbroken for them, I would suggest that maybe we've forgotten how undeserving of God's grace we are too. Because the more we recognize our need for God's grace, the more we wrestle with our own deep-seated brokenness, the more we will celebrate when he pours out his grace on others who desperately need it. As Alistair Begg says, ultimately divine grace towards sinners cannot be understood because it's amazing grace. It doesn't have a reason. It simply reflects who God is. If we have not been personally grasped by God's grace, if our hearts have not been transformed by his love, if we just have a pharisaical religion that's based on what we do, if we think that what we do makes us good enough for God, then we will look at disfigured and broken and wretched people, and instead of having compassion for them, we will look on them with contempt. And Jonah, Jonah was full of contempt. But God, God was still being gracious to Jonah. God was still caring for him and trying to help him see the bigger picture. He's still trying to help Jonah see a world beyond himself. Jonah 4, 6 says, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. We see that God is compassionate even when his people are upset and depressed. God is compassionate even when his people are angry and obstinate, something I am personally very grateful for. Because we see that he's the God of the sea and he's the God of the land. First he sends the fish and now he sends the vine. Now Jonah can sit in comfort and wait for God to do what Jonah thinks God is supposed to do. Jonah can sit in comfort and wait for God to judge. And so what does God do? God does exactly what Jonah asks him to do. God judges. Verse 7 and 8. 
But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah wants God to destroy and punish, so God does exactly that. God destroys the vine and he punishes Jonah. Not quite what Jonah was looking for. So we should be careful what we ask God to do because sometimes he might say yes to us. And now Jonah's heart and his self-centeredness are laid completely bare. God gives him the vine and Jonah is happy. God takes the vine away and Jonah's upset. And Jonah had no concern for the vine. His only concern was for himself because Jonah looked at everything around him with this question, what can you do for me? Because Jonah's life was all about Jonah. And how often is that exactly how we look at life? How much of our lives are all about us? Matt Chandler asks the question this way, how many people do you have in your lives that can't do anything for you? How many people do you have in your lives that can't give you anything, can't help you in any way, can't offer you anything? And so God questions Jonah again, still trying to get him to look away from himself and see the bigger picture. Look away from himself so that he could see God's plan. And verses 9 to 11. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have not been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And what we see is Jonah cared more about his own comfort than he did the forgiveness of the Ninevites. He grieved more for a vine than he did for people's lives. Jonah cared more about his own comfort than he cared about the 120,000 people living in the city. And it's a humbling question. What do we care about more than the people of Nineveh? As I've asked myself that question over the past week, I've been appalled that I've discovered it's likely the wrong question. Because the question isn't what, but the question I found is how many things do I care about more than the people of Nineveh? And we are in the middle of Nineveh. If you draw a seven-mile circle around this building, there's somewhere between 75,000 and 125,000 people who, just like the people in Nineveh, don't know their right hand from their left. We can't expect them to follow the morals of a God they don't know. They need to be introduced to him. We're surrounded by people who need to hear about and experience God's grace and be given opportunity to repent because behavior follows belief, not the other way around. Are we really open to God's plan? Do we really believe that the people around us should be given the opportunity to repent and would we celebrate if they did? And what did Jonah decide? 
truth is, we just don't know. God doesn't tell us that part of the story. But God's question to Jonah is the same question he's asking us. Shouldn't God be concerned for our community in which there are more than 100,000 people who can't tell their right from their left? And the question is, what will we decide? Are we willing to give up our comforts? Willing to give up our preferences? Willing to give up our preconceptions and our prejudices? Willing to give of our time and our finances? Willing to reconsider what church means and looks like in order to reach Nineveh? Jonah was right. God is gracious and compassionate. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. God relents from sending calamity on those who confess. But is our acknowledgement of God merely an intellectual confession of facts about him like Jonah's was? Or is it a heartfelt confession of surrender? Christ sacrificed himself so that he could pay the price for our sins. Christ sacrificed himself so that we could be forgiven. God's judgment is never because of his unwillingness to forgive. God's judgment is because of our unwillingness to repent and surrender. And so the question we have to ask ourselves today is are we surrendered to God? As we continue our crossroads journey from Sunday into Monday, we have to ask ourselves this question this week. Are we really open to God's plan? And have we surrendered to it? Who are the Ninevites in our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, and our workplaces that need to hear the message of God's grace? And will we share it with them? And would we rejoice if they responded? Is this a place where we can bring people to learn about belief without any fear of facing condemnation? We have been called to be a blessing. We've been called to reach out to our Nineveh. And the question is, are we open? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are gracious. And I thank you that you are a God of second chances. Thank you for the many second chances you've given me in my life. I pray that we would be a people of second chances. That we would be a people that would extend grace and mercy to those who surround us who so desperately need to hear about your grace and experience your grace. I pray that we would be open to your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.